You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Now I want to invite you, if you will, to join me in Philippians chapter 4. Now, now I want to invite you there because over the last several weeks we've been walking through the season of Easter beginning at uh, at. At Easter Sunday, we've been walking through the book of Philippians together. It's a letter written by an apostle who encountered Jesus while he was persecuting Jesus and his people and was radically transformed such that he went to, to testify to Jesus and, and began planting churches. And this church he, he founded and planted, you can read about it in Acts chapter 16 in the New Testament. And, and as we've been walking through this book, we've been introduced to this apostle who who maybe about 10 or so years after he planted this church, received a gift, a generous investment into his church planting and, 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 and pastoral ministry around the region. And he sends this letter as a, an expression of gratitude and, and encouragement, and we'll see an invitation to rejoice in any and all circumstances, but also to address, as we saw last week, a division that seemed to be brewing in this church. And so this last chapter, in many ways, is just kind of Paul rapid fire some concluding applications for the good news of Jesus that he's unpacked for the previous chapters. And so he, he calls them to unity, as we saw last week, to, to prize Jesus above all and consider our citizenship in God's kingdom and, and the fact that we are written, our names individually are written in a, in a book of eternal life. And in light of that, we now respond to one another. We now can agree, as we saw in the Lord and disagree on everything else. So I want to read to you, uh, beginning in verse 4, all the way to verse 13. We'll be spending the majority of our time today on verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. But as we overlap his, his exhortation to this church in light of who Christ is, in light of Christ's humility and his obedience to lay down his life for us, not just to, to die for us, but to, to take an obedient and humble place of a servant who died on an old rugged cross. So now, beginning in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. My prayer is that this would become more than just ink on a page, but that it would become the very life-giving and edifying words of God for His people. Last week we saw that we are called to rejoice in, even in the midst of disagreement because Christ has secured our eternal citizenship, and we stand firm in that, such that we can begin to agree in the Lord 
and free to disagree in other things. And we saw last week that's incredibly good news, right? Because we, we might be tempted to think, especially now, I know I am, I, I am, but this isn't the first tense or uncertain time in the history of the world. But I know, at least for my own life, that this is a, a particularly uncertain time. This is a time of great unrest around us, at least if the United States is your home. And he says, the good news is that Christ has secured our eternal standing and citizenship such that we can live as ambassadors, living in a different land, testifying by the way that we relate to one another to that eternal citizenship. And we agree then, because of what he's purchased for us, in who he is, what he's done in his perfect life, in his atoning death, in his victorious resurrection. And that frees us to hold everything else loosely. You remember the chapter before that, that we were invited to consider that in light of Christ, compared to knowing Christ and the victory of his resurrection, and even the fellowship in it with his suffering, everything else is waste. It's excrement. It's dung, quite literally. So we can agree on the goodness of Jesus and, and with reasonableness disagree on everything else. And that's good to know. After all, this is an election year. What I can certainly guess will be a a contentious disagreement. But here's the thing. We don't have to agree on politics. Praise God. Instead, we can disagree, as he said, with a reasonableness that is known by everyone. Wow, those people are in such agreement on the Lord Jesus that they're free to disagree elsewhere. We don't have to agree on homeschool, private school, public school. We, We don't have to agree on on any of the contentious issues. We don't even have to agree on how we respond to the history of racism in America. We don't have to agree perfectly. But because of Jesus, thank God, our eternity is secure. And now we can disagree in such a way that testifies to a radical loyalty to an otherworldly kingdom marked by reasonableness. But the second thing we're introduced to, beginning in verse 10, is is not just that we will be marked by reasonableness because of our loyalty to Jesus, our citizenship in his kingdom, but we can also be marked by contentment. Contentment. And what I would argue to you is that Paul states with such confidence that he has the thing that I believe every single one of us is working for. That solid groundedness, that sense of being so rooted that it doesn't matter what circumstance you face. The situation can't rob you of a deeper joy. So he begins to express his gratitude, as he will today. We'll see this again as he concludes the letter next week. But he he expresses gratitude for these people because they had sent Epaphroditus, a, a faithful servant of Jesus with a with a financial or otherwise generous investment into Paul's ministry after all he was in prison separated from them and and so he sent Epaphroditus back with his commendation that he almost died ministering to him but but he says thank you that's what he in effect says but but not necessarily thank you but thank God for your concern for me but even in this even in the face of such a generous gift I have found the secret that whether you'd given me the gift or not, whether it had met needs or not, I have learned the secret. That is the thing that's not readily obvious to having contentment in all circumstances. Now, up to this point, Paul, remember, in the flow of Philippians, has informed our practical matters of living with the deep theological truths of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. And now, as we saw last week, he applied the gospel to, as we saw, their relationships, calling out specific divisions that were brewing. As I cast to you a vision and hope and prayer that that we would be a relationally healthy church more than anything else. And then an emotionally healthy church. Did you catch that? That because of Jesus, we would be freed from deep anxiety, but, but marked by instead deep and unfathomable did you catch that beyond understanding kind of peace and then he says i I want you to have in light of jesus an unshakable contentment now 
that is simply an overflow of what he's already said. He said, look, compared to knowing Jesus, everything else is excrement. After all, anything else you would argue over is like arguing over excrement compared to our citizenship in Jesus. So therefore, the the situations we face ultimately compared to knowing Jesus are not worth being worn down over. They're not worth shaking our contentment. So let's begin to walk through these verses as he as he applies deep, powerful truths in such practical and what I think you, for you and me can be accessible ways. Before we do that, we have to laugh at the elephant in the room, don't we? Did you catch what we read in verse 8? sets up for this conclusion. It was the word, finally. Now, if you've been with us, you'll also remember that the very first verse of chapter 3 is the word, finally. Now, now Joe led us through the, the third chapter, and I'm so grateful for him. I, I want to just stop for a minute in light of this kind of strange, ironic joke and elephant in the room. I love getting to teach the Bible to you. I'm so grateful for it. I can't begin to explain or express what what a gift and and what a powerful privilege it is to open the Bible and then to begin to open it and, and let it just let it pour over all of us. Let it, it and then expound upon what it might mean for you and for me. And so I'm so grateful that that our brother Joe and and others even who have taught. The, the Bible for us, walked us through this. And, and I'm, I'm so grateful to get to teach with you again, and yet at the same time, I, I miss just the, the way that I got to be ministered to. And so I'm grateful for that. But, but he was kind and gracious. He overlooked the joke in there. There's four chapters in the book of Philippians, and Paul, at the beginning of the third chapter, says, finally, and then again, did you catch it? What we just overlapped, verse 8 of verse 4, he says, finally, a second time. Now, the joke I think I've shared with you is, after all, if we take the gospel seriously, we can be free to not take ourselves so seriously. But the joke story I've told you is like the little boy looking to his father in the middle of the sermon says, Daddy, the preacher says he's about to wrap up. What does that mean? And the father says to the child, nothing. It means nothing. So if you hear me say we're about to wrap up, Just know, I'm just taking my cues from my good friend Paul, who says, finally, I'm going to wrap up now, and then goes on for two more chapters. So show a little grace to me, but you have to at least laugh. Twice he says, finally, so we're wrapping up. No, no, really. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, commendable, honorable, all these things, think on these things. Look into these things. Verse 10. Now I, as he commanded us to rejoice, he says, now I rejoiced. I rejoiced in the Lord. I rejoiced greatly because of your concern for me. It has been revived. And the, the phrase there, at length, it's, it's not meant to like, well, finally, oh goodness. I've been, but, but as if to say, like, I couldn't believe that great lengths, or I couldn't believe that after all this time, you're still thinking of me. And, and I just want to offer it as a word of encouragement that others' concern is a cause for rejoicing. A profound and practical application that others concern. Now think of it, it points to the gospel, like the fact that God did not turn away from us, but turn toward us, and, and out of concern and compassion and love and mercy, came to be with us and for us. That is the source of greatest rejoicing. That's our eternal hope, eternal joy. And we get a glimpse of it when others are concerned for us as well. I highlight this because this is not only a source of encouragement that I've been receiving. I mean, I just have, I have so much gratitude for Connection Church, and the last several months have been just difficult and exhausting, I know for me, and yet in a a way that I can't even put into words, so many of you have reached out with words of encouragement that were, it was so timely. It was at just the right moment that someone expressed concern. How are you doing? I'm praying for you. Thank you. Not, not because I've done something perfect, but out of concern saying, look, thank you. How are you doing? So from the depths of my own gratitude, I'm so thankful for this. I'm living proof of this. I, I can say with Paul, I get me too. I'm so grateful for the ways that even in such contentious and difficult times, so many people, maybe more than any other time, in the, I know in the life of our own church, people have reached out with concern and compassion towards me. And it was deeply encouraging. And so then, I think that's a, a model and an indicator of something that the church ought to be doing. Constantly expressing concern for one another. And maybe you're the kind of person that, even now, pe- someone's reaching out to you and saying, hey, how are you doing? And, and you don't want to respond. And, 
And I get that. I, I share your cynicism. But notice that this is what we're called to be and to do. It's to express concern. To say, hey, I'm worried about you. This is a community of concern. And Paul gets to model for us, like, look, this is why it's so great. I, I, I have cause for rejoicing. Now, again, notice he doesn't say, I rejoiced in your concern. I rejoiced in the gift. I rejoiced in the thing that you sent to me. Or I, you know, I, I rejo- but, but he says, I rejoiced in the Lord. So, so just notice for just a moment. They expressed concern, but his rejoicing was in the Lord. He looked right past the concern that they had expressed and saw who was behind. Who was the person pulling the strings? Who, who was the person operating those gracious puppets? It was the Lord. It was Jesus himself. Now, we saw this already, right? When, when Paul was met abruptly on the road to Damascus by Jesus himself, he says, Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, he wasn't persecuting Jesus. Jesus is already resurrected and ascended to the Father, but instead he was persecuting Jesus' people, and yet Jesus says, no, look, they're me, we are united together. And look, he says, the same thing is in play here. Even though you were kind to me, I recognized the author of that kindness. It was none other than the Lord. Be sensitive to nudges. We saw in chapter 1, even recollections. He says, I thank God that I, every time I remember you. And consider the possibility that that nudge or that reminder, maybe even now, that person that comes to mind that you haven't spoken to, that person that maybe comes to mind even right now who could probably use a phone call, a text, an email, or something, or just a visit, that concern for them, that recollection even of them, we saw in chapter 1, might be none other than the Lord himself inviting you and to demonstrate the same kind of concern he showed for us at the cross. But the other side of that coin is an encouragement. Notice what he said. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. There's a a practical application here for me. Don't assume no one cares. Don't assume it there may not be an opportunity to express it and be comforted in that. Notice Paul says, look, I'm not saying that you weren't concerned for me. In fact, the, the concern you've shown for me reminds me of that, but, but it's just that you didn't have the opportunity. Maybe is that they were still raising the money to give to Paul or they were, they were preparing for, some, uh, for something to send with Epaphroditus. We don't know. But whatever it was, he says, look, I'm so grateful for your concern and And I know that you've had that, but I just noticed you don't have the opportunity. So so friend, be encouraged. If right now you feel isolated, it may be because you've stiff-armed people and pushed them out of your life, but it may be because the people who love and care for you just might not have the opportunity to express it. Maybe they don't know how. And be comforted. Just because you haven't received it or recognized it or, or even experienced it doesn't mean that there isn't a God moving towards you in concern. Be comforted. It's on the way. It's on the way. Comfort is coming. An opportunity will present itself. Whether because God will send and enliven someone to come and offer encouragement, or Jesus is going to come back himself. Wipe away every tear. So be encouraged. I know what it feels like sometimes to think that no one cares. But that's just not true. And the gospel is proof of it. Begin then in the next verse. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. So he kind of makes like a, he slams on the brakes. Like, okay, so you've helped me. I'm grateful for your concern. But he kind of goes off for a few verses and what seems like a tangent. But, but I want you to see, it's his pastoral heart for them that they wouldn't be misled about what the gospel is and how the gospel brings Comfort even in need. So he's like, thank you for caring for me, right? Thank the Lord, in fact, that you've cared for me. We'll even see that next week. But I'm not saying this just because you met a need. I'm grateful for that, right? Thank you for meeting a need. But I'm not saying it because I'm in need. That's not what I'm excited. The contentment that I begin to experience, as he says, I've learned in whatever situation, isn't that they had concern for them. Or excuse me, that they had concern for him. 
His contentment was in something else, something that he says is a secret in verse 12, something not readily obvious. And so I want to spend our time really just reflecting in those few verses on what contentment is and how we can have it unshakably. And then we'll even see as we experience contentment as something that humbly we learn. So he stops for a minute. He's like, thank you for the gift, but, but I don't want you to be thinking that the gift is, is what gives me contentment. I don't want you to think that just because you met a need, now I'm content. Now, we don't know necessarily why, but, but it could be possibly that this is just something that the Holy Spirit laid on Paul's heart to, to, to encourage these people with, but there might have been what he sensed to be uh, some sort of a, a discontentment, or after all, he's already talking about the, he's, already, he's already been talking to us about the, the anxiety and the, the disagreement and the, and the rivalry and dissension that, that he's been speaking against over the last couple of chapters, but he says here, I don't want you to think that that comfort and, and that having these material needs met, or I don't want you to think that's the source of contentment. So he says, not that, pretty emphatically, right? It's not that I'm speaking about being in need. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about contentment. For I have learned, in whatever situation, I am to be content. And so I want to just walk through what it, mean, what it means to experience deep contentment. Now the Bible elsewhere, I'll, I'll kind of end on this, not only says that contentment is available, but the 10th commandment says that contentment is commanded. And so the idea that we should not covet we should not want more of someone else's stuff. That we should be content in ourselves and content with what we have isn't to say that you aren't to want or to long or even to need. After all, the Bible from the beginning to the end is, is, is a document that invites us to experience radical dependence upon God as our Father. That God will supply our needs. That every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of light. So there's no shadow of turning in Him. He's good and He will provide. And so it's not that we shouldn't need. We are needy creatures all the time. It's not that we shouldn't want or long. There's so many good and great common graces. Gifts that God has made available to everyone that we should, because they're good, long for them, want them, aspire to them, save up for them. It's not the longing or wanting for good things. It's what the Bible describes as coveting that's evil. It's this inner grasping at something that you cannot go on without. It's this longing for something that, as if to say that, like, I can't make it without this. Now, we describe this at length as we walk through the Gospel of John as Jesus describes bringing life abundant, that is, the good life. And I invited you then and I invite you now to think like, what is the thing that makes your life good? I'll be living, I'll be living the good life if I had fill in the blank. And it isn't that we aren't to, to long for good and gracious things. They're gifts. It's that when those longings start to actually control us, that we've stepped into what the Bible commends to uh, excuse me condemns as coveting i'll say it this way we are to own our desires our desires are not to own us i heard tim keller speaking on idolatry a prominent christian author i agree with him when he says this he he described simply like coveting as as, as not, it, it, like if you think of wanting something or longing for something is when, when you are the dog and your want or longing is the tail. Coveting is when your want or your longing is the dog and you are its tail. And your longing and your wants wag you. We're to own our desires. We're to see them in light of the deeply satisfying gift of Christ 
Our desires are never meant to own us. That's slavery. And contentment, you'll know you've seen it. Contentment is when you know your desires in their proper place. And look, we sing this. Sometimes you might miss it. And that's why I try to draw attention to it. But we sing a, 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 a pretty old song because it's timeless and helpful. And we sing, come thou fount of every blessing. We're, we're saying, God, come. The fountain of every blessing. Come, the source and supply of every blessing. We don't sing, come every blessing. We don't say, God, just give me the blessing. We say, God, I want you. I don't want just the cash out of the account. The account. I want the owner of the infinite account. I don't want just a gift. I want the giver. And the minute that we desire the gift more than the giver, we've spun off into what we, des- we would simply call as coveting, or and as Paul illustrates it here, discontentment. We elevate the status of the gift above the status of the giver. And that's why we sing, so that we, so that we might not elevate the status of blessings, thank God for blessing, over the status and value of the fountain of every blessing. And so contentment is, is when you know the good and right value of things. Again, we saw this in the last chapter. The last chapter says that compared to knowing Jesus, everything else can be flushed down the toilet. And contentment is simply the, the outward expression and experience of a rightly ordered set of priorities. Jesus is all-surpassing. He's sufficient and beautiful, and he's supremely valuable. And compared to him, everything else, eh, it's dung, excrement. And contentment is the experience of knowing that to be true. Knowing the eternal value of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, and the deep satisfaction that he brings to us, and the deep dissatisfaction that everything else leaves. Maybe think about it as opposite this way. Discontentment is treating anything that is temporary as though it is eternal. There's a quote I've, I think I've shared with you from, from Wallace Stevens as he describes some existence in life as the need for some imperishable bliss. Uh, don't you love that? The imperishable bliss. A blissfulness that, that does not perish. It's eternal. And you know that the only way to stay content with a perishable bliss, a thing that comes and goes, is to imagine that it is imperishable or to treat it that way. Haven't you been in a moment like that? Haven't you been in a place where I, I wish I could just enjoy this forever? Haven't you been like halfway through the most delicious meal that satisfies your hunger and thinking this is the most amazing thing ever only to find a few bites later you can't stand even the sight of another bite? This is the human condition. And the only way that we can experience deep contentment is to truly see what's eternal and then treat everything that's perishable rightly. And we live in light of this, as he says, a need for imperishable bliss. And you know the great lengths that you and I go to convince ourselves that these perishable blessings are imperishable. And you and I both know the deep despair that comes when they fade when they wear out or disappear. And discontentment then, notice he says, I'm not speaking of just being need. I'm, I'm speaking of being contentment. In, I'm speaking of being content in what? Catch this. In whatever situation. So notice he's saying the situation itself is perishable. It is ephemeral. It's passing. It's temporary. And yet, whatever the temporary situation, I have an eternal contentment. It outlasts the temporary blisses. I mean, you remember this, like we said in, in the Gospel of John, the, the, the pitch of the good life that Jesus says he's come to give. You'll remember this. This, this is one of the things that we, I, I, whenever I get stumped on a particular idea, I tend to just quote people who know more than me, which is basically all the time. But 
But a book that we commend is the book Mere Christianity from an author by the name of C.S. Lewis. And, and he says something amazing to us, that creatures are not born with a desire or any desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So he goes on. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Rather, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Let me say that again. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy our deep longings. They were only meant to arouse those longings, to point towards and to suggest the real thing. Did you catch that here? Whatever the situation... Now, he has cause for rejoicing. He said that, look, look, I'm grateful for the gift. I'm grateful for your generosity. I'm I'm encouraged and I'm rejoicing now because of the situation. But forget the situation. I've got something even better than this situation. Your gift allows me, did you catch it, to rejoice, not just in the gift, but to rejoice in the Lord. Your gift has stirred up in me and aroused in me a a delight that simply points toward a deeper satisfaction that I find in the Lord. And discontentment is whenever we look for that satisfaction apart from the giver of good gifts. After all, just ask yourself, if there is a God and God has created everything and He's invented everything, who who is it that invented pleasure? Who is it that thought up that you might have a desire for it. God has stirred us in us that desire. But, but here's the thing, is that great gifts and great blessings, and even in this case, situations, are dangerous. You see, really good gifts, really great blessings, really great situations make you just happy enough to be angry and miserable about them later. I mean, isn't it your experience that most of your anger, your anxiety, your dissatisfaction revolves around the thing you pursue the most fervently? I mean, isn't it the case the thing that you want the most and desire the most and invest in the most seems to always be the cause of the greatest anxiety and frustration? Haven't you found that it's the case that the thing that you've poured your life into somehow seems to be the thing you're the most angry and impatient with and, might I even say, discontented in? Great friendships, careers, families. You name all the good gifts we get to enjoy. They make you think you have found joy without being the true fulfillment. This is even especially important for us as living in a more postmodern society. We don't necessarily pursue a thing. We pursue ourselves. We pursue self-actualization. We pursue like self-discovery and self-expression. And, and, and isn't it the thing that, that if that's what we value the most, is it not ironic maybe? Maybe is it quite expected that that's the thing we're the most upset by? Because even knowing yourself won't find fulfillment. And as I've shared with you regularly, most of the people who are off trying to find themselves found themselves and they just didn't like what they discovered. And they're off looking for an alternative. Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered why some of the things that you invest your life into the most actually cause the most dissatisfaction and frustration and anxiety and anger? Have you ever wondered why? Paul tells us, you know why? Because it's a secret. 
It's a secret. It's not readily obvious. It's not a secret like God is hiding it from us. It's just that we are so easily distracted. You have to look deeper. You have to look underneath those desires. Because what you're really after, what you really long for is underneath it. What you're really searching for, what you're really invested in is actually layers beneath it. It's at the root of our very existence. Now that's important, just practically speaking, to step aside here and say, he says, look, I found the secret. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger. And that means one of the best things that we can do for one another is is to to ask hard questions. Hey, what's under that? Why Why are you after that? Why are you so upset about that? Why are you pursuing that so hotly? Why does that cause such great despair? Or why does that give you such joy that when you come off of that high, you crash miserably? It's a secret. The thing that we're after isn't immediately obvious. We quote Augustine that he says that thou hast made us for thyself. O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. I mean, he's, he's expositing Paul's counsel here, isn't he? Our, we're going to be restless in every situation. We're going to be restless when we're brought low. We're going to be restless when we abound. We're going to be restless in, restless in every circumstances unless we find our eternal rest in God alone. Why? Because it's the origin God is the inventor of rest. Not because he's tired, but because he likes to give good gifts. He's the source of all things. And so underneath every single desire, even the most base and perverse desires that drive so many sinful sectors of our economy, underneath all of those things is the creator. And those base desires point to their origin, the source of every good and perfect gift. You want love? You want acceptance? You want to belong? You want achievement? You want deep satisfaction? You want to relax? Ask yourself this. Who invented those things? What what great and beautiful artist thought of those things? And then you'll realize that down deep, you really want his love. You really want his acceptance. You really want the comfort he gives. And friend, hear the good news. In Christ, in any circumstance, those things are freely available to us. Freely available. All the acceptance, all the acclaim, all the contentment have been freely offered to us by the price paid by Jesus. But notice the way he says it. I have learned the secret. Verse 11, I have learned. Verse Two, he's like, I've come to know how. In verse 12, quite literally again, he says, I've been, initi- I've been initiated into this. Now, now, I just want to point out here, this is important, a caveat. Contentment is not self-reliance or self-sufficiency. Those are deceptive alternatives, right? Hey, how are you doing? I'm fine. And what that usually means is that I've taken care of everything. I'm independent, I am self-sufficient. I don't need any help. But that's not contentment. In fact, that's just the the cloud of contentment. It's a deceptive form of contentment. And so he says, look, I do not have these things in and of myself. I have no capability in and of myself. My rejoicing is in the Lord. And the secret isn't something that I've accomplished. There's no heroism here. It's something he learned and he is initiated into. As if to say, as you see here, All those things, all of those things come from what? Verse 13, him, him who supplies strength to be contentment. All of those things I can do through him because he makes me strong, not me. Let me summarize that this way. True contentment comes from knowing that Christ is sufficient. For all things. He's the inventor, so he knows how to fix it. 
You can send this one back to the manufacturer and he will refurbish it and make it better than new. He designed it. He thought of it. And so therefore, he is sufficient to repair, restore, reconcile, and make all things new. And real contentment comes from knowing that. Real contentment comes from knowing. Look, remember that think on all these good things, what's commendable, what's good, what's holy, what's pure. When you think on these things, when you see how trustworthy and commendable and praiseworthy he is, you find yourself holding a little less tightly to the things you think or thought were going to give you happiness. But notice when those things are revealed. In any situation, he says, brought low and abound. In every circumstance, in plenty and in hunger. Just briefly, I want to reflect on this. Like The way you know you have contentment is that it lasts through hunger and in abundance. Being brought low and facing desolate situations. And you know this is true, right? The people most prone to despair, the, as you see this, the people who are most likely to, to take their own lives aren't necessarily the people in the middle. They're the people who are experiencing deep want and hunger, who despair of life. But here's the strange irony. Also the people who experience the height of success. Plenty and want. Desire to get something that you can't quite reach. Either because the thing you've dreamt of is beyond your ability to grasp, or as we saw as we walked through the entire book of Ecclesiastes a few years ago, when you get the thing you've longed for and you find out just how deeply unsatisfying it is. There's a pain and despair of failure, of misery, and yet he says there's also apparently a pain and despair of getting the thing you wanted and that thing not satisfying the desires that it aroused. I mean, isn't that the pain of life? You constantly live in want, even when you get what you want. And that's how we find here that you know you have an idol. It never satisfies. <laughs> but it still hangs right beyond your reach and convinces you that you just need one more fix and you've got to get there. And here's the thing, most of us stay in fantasy land just to protect ourselves. We'd rather just dream about what we might have because we're either too afraid to fail, or we're either too afraid of failing, or actually too afraid of what would happen if we succeeded. Here's what I know, myself included. The people most mature, content, the people who thrive in this world because of Christ, they've either lost their dream or they've found it and they were still thirsty. True maturity in this, I've heard one commentarian say it this way, true matur maturity, it sounds like cynicism, but it's not. True maturity is realizing that you'll never find joy in this life. True maturity is knowing that, I mean, think about it, you can outgrow youth, but sometimes you don't necessarily outgrow immaturity. And you can keep chasing toys and dreams and creature comforts and and true maturity is realizing their proper place, that they were never meant to satisfy. They were simply meant to serve as an appetizer for the deeply satisfying gift of God's grace in Christ. So here's how you can test it. Go look at your calendar, or maybe for some of you, go look in storage. Look at your calendar. And you'll either see the thing or its absence. Right? Some of you want to be important. And that's why the moniker of our day is that we're busy. We're basically saying, don't think I'm unimportant, right? Look at your calendar. It's full. You are, did you catch that? In plenty, in abundance. You abound. You have tons of stuff to do. How's that working out for your contentment? But then maybe some of you look at your calendar and you realize all the things that you wish were there. All the dates and things and events that you wish you were invited to experience on your calendar. And it'd be tempting to say, well, it's just, maybe what you're saying is Jesus, uh, or maybe what you're saying is that, like, 
maybe just the, the right amount of stuff in my calendar is going to make me happy, right, Jonathan? No, that's the point. The calendar can't make you happy. It can only reveal how discontent you really are. The next one I would say is look at your storage. Right? Again, maybe if you're like me, don't pity me on this one. You shouldn't feel sorry for me. This is my own problem, right? But maybe you're in abundance. My attic's full. My garage is crowded. It needs to be cleaned. That's my fault and no one else's, right? Maybe that's yours as well. You have lots of stuff. But would you just join me as I invite you into thinking like, how well did those things deeply satisfy you? Is it possible that even in your abundance, it reveals how scattered and discontent you are? Or maybe on the other side, and you're looking at your storage, and you're thinking, I can't wait to fill this up with stuff. I can't wait to have four of those. That's me, right? I can't wait to have a backup for a backup for a backup. Then I know, then I'll be comfortable. And, and the same thing is true here. The plenty and want reveal what's really true. And you can blame those things, or, as you see here, you can look to the inventor of those desires. And you can realize there is something to be had. I want you to consider the fact that we do all these things, the emphasis in verse 13, through him. How? Well, just hear the good news. Jesus experienced the deepest emptiness so that we could experience the fullness of God. He was utterly abandoned, utterly alone, lost everything of value in this earth, had nothing, and yet he took on the position of lowliness and hunger so that you and I would experience plenty and abundance. Look, we're all trying to get what Paul has found, and we, in the end, are often trying to earn or purchase something that Christ has already paid for on our behalf. And this, this is the application of chapter 3. Unmask, pull off the mask, lift the curtain, lift the smoke on all the enemies that act like your friends. All the things that say, I'll satisfy you, I'll give you what you want, come after me. Lift the mask off that imposter. Raise the, turn on the light in that darkness and, and raise the fog with, with a clarity. All of these things simply arouse a desire that God implanted to be ultimately satisfied by Him alone. So we can endure all of those things. Now, I won't go on a rant here about Philippians 4.13. Remember I told you that all these verses are like the greatest hits of Paul? This is one of them. It's always taken out of context. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, I'm not going to rant on this because I used to aspire to being an athlete. And I used this, I'll admit, in this way. Like, I basically like... Oh, sweet, I can do, I can score touchdowns through him who strengthens me. I can hit home runs through him who strengthens me. But notice, it says nothing about that. Connected to the verses before, uh, this verse isn't so much about, I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me, namely, I can score the touchdown or win the game, right? I can, I can win the date, I can, I can achieve this is to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me when every single one of those things fail. Philippians 4.13 isn't for the winners or the people who aspire to win. Paul says that will actually expose how discontent you are. Philippians 4.13 is for those of us who are deeply sad, in despair, experiencing what seems like the loss of all things. Friends, Jesus experienced the loss of all things so that we would experience his fullness. I'll dare you to pray something. In light of this, I dare you to pray to God even right now. Say to God, God, even if you have to bring suffering into my life in order to bring me freedom from sin and joy and contentment in you, then bring it on. God, even if you have to ruin my dreams here on earth, bring it on. If you have to take away all good things so that I would finally experience the pleasure of knowing you, then bring it on. And friend, I dare you to pray that prayer. 
Not like a silly dare on a schoolyard because you might not happen. It might not happen. I dare you because I promise that when you pray that prayer, you will find that in all things, in all circumstances, he will be sufficient. He will meet you and he will give you everything you need. And those fleeting desires that you and I chase will finally have their good and rightful place. Appetizers for a deeply and eternally satisfying joy in him. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that you have in your mercy revealed yourself even to a child's heart. And the wisdom of this world just doesn't compare to your enduring wisdom, even though it isn't readily obvious. And so I ask that even now as many of us are, are contemplating the thing that we're pursuing, the, the desires we're after, would you even now meet us in that? And, and not to shame us and not to bring us to despair, but to show us that, that that despair over those unmet or even met expectations were simply meant to draw us closer to you. Thank you that you do not hide yourself from us. So if there's some, maybe they're not believers, not Christians, and yet they're longing for satisfaction, even now would you introduce yourself to them. Show them that Jesus has withstood the loss of all things so that we know we can endure anything, experiencing his abundance. Maybe for the rest of us, we just simply wrestle with complaining and discontentment because we've hoped in just lesser things. God, thank you that even through trials and difficulties, you're not out to get us. You're not out to hurt us. You're out to satisfy us. These things around us seem unsatisfying, not because you're not good, but because you're better. So even right now, by faith, would you overwhelm us with the satisfaction of how good and how great, how merciful how satisfying you are. Allow us to look away from lesser things to experience contentment in any and all circumstances. Allow us to say with Paul that we have discovered the secret that in all things we can have strength in Christ. Thank you for this. May we receive it now as we look to you in faith. Amen.